Please note that this episode of Bits and Bricks contains instances of misuse of the Lego trademark, which must always be used as an adjective and never a noun. As a reminder, it is never appropriate to refer to the company that designs and produces Lego brand products as Lego. Rather, the correct name for the company overall is the Lego Group. I hope that was severe enough. Was it severe enough? We get... Yeah, that was great, Ben. We got it. All right. On with the show. We fundamentally changed what a Lego experience was. We spend, what, 41% of our lives now staring at screens. And so all of that groundwork that Lego has done in spending the time and energies on these innovations, the ones that worked, the ones that didn't, is going to pay off in the long run. I was led to believe there is a vault at Lego that has everything in it. You know, when we shut everything down and left the offices, we sent them all the prototypes, you know, the code to date and all of that. Um, they also got a jar of pig's feet. Um, I don't know if they realized that <laughs> what? as well. Um, <laughs> Bits and Bricks. Welcome to Bits and Bricks, a podcast about all things Lego games. I'm Ethan Vincent. And I'm Brian Crescenti. Together, we look back at the rich 25-year history of Lego games, chat with early developers as well as seasoned studios who have all tackled the creation of video games for one of the most popular and respected toy companies in the world, the Lego Group. All right, Brian. So here we are. Another episode of Bits and Bricks. Um, today's kind of an interesting topic, more of a theme than a specific game. And we're looking at a thing that is being called fluid play. Let's just start out asking, what is fluid play? So yeah, fluid play um, is, I, I guess it's the most recent um, take on a phrase that has been evolving since the 90s. Um, I, I guess you could trace it back to something called smart toys. And then uh, there were things like toys to life and game enabled toys. And then the Lego group came up with this idea of one reality. And eventually that became fluid play. Uh, but I think the best way to maybe explain what all of the, uh, what all of that is, is to actually quote the Lego group. Uh, they put out a report, the, the Lego Playwell report in 2018 where they talk a little bit about this. I'm going to read this. It's only three paragraphs, but it's very interesting, I think. They said, play is evolving fast. In the space of generations, the way we do it and the places we do it have changed drastically. Today's children were born into new societies with new technologies, new values, and new ways of living and working. Play has been reimagined as a dynamic, overlapping, frictionless experience that brings the real world, imaginary play, and digital experiences together as one. In uniting these play worlds across time and space, children today are mastering the art of finding new moments and forms of play. And this is essentially fluid play. Yeah. So it's this idea of sort of fluidly moving between playing with a Lego brick and then playing perhaps a Lego video game where you don't have something physical in your hand. Yeah. So it's this idea of being able to move back and forth. Yeah, and, and one of the things, too, that I keep learning over and over again, uh, obviously as an outsider, is this idea that the Lego group is so incredibly involved in researching all things that have to do with play. Yeah. Um, it's not just digital play, but before even digital was a thing, they were studying 
all the iterations and the different kinds of play that a kid could experience in this physical building world that they were involved in. Um, and so this isn't new for them to examine it thoroughly. And in this kind of manifesto you read at the beginning of this very dense philosophical kind of exploration of what it means to, you know, play fluidly with the game-enabled toy. Right. And obviously that's something, you know, you can't just write up in one document over a year. Um, you've, you've got to experience it, you, you know, through testing, failing and learning and getting up again. And, yeah. you know, kind of like they had to do at the beginning of their physical toy experience. Experience, uh, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think this report, the Playwell report, speaks a lot to that. Uh, the reality is in the Lego group's mind, and I think it's true, not all play is equal. Yeah. And so that report and a lot of the research the Lego group does is about finding good play and augmenting it and highlighting it. And talking about the Lego group's history and smart toys, I think you need to go back to the mid to late 90s. This is when they're working a lot with the MIT Media Lab, yes. and specifically in 1997, they soft launch what is essentially Mindstorms and try it out in Chicago. Uh, there's a really positive reaction, so positive in fact that they decide to release something called the Barcode Multiset, which was essentially a dump truck yeah. with a remote control that you could program. And then it was in 1998 in which the Lego group released Mindstorms and Cybermaster. Uh, and then it was in 2000 that they came out with something called the MyBot. But I want to go back to 98 and specifically uh, in January 1998, we find the release of Mindstorms, which was obviously a huge hit. Yeah. But also alongside it was the release of Cybermaster, which was a Technic set. And, and where Mindstorms was sort of the rocket science equivalent of Lego bricks, Cybermaster was more like the cartoon equivalent. Yeah. So one had you learning robotics. The other one had you sort of creating these toys that you'd bash together. And it had this sort of fiction tied to it that was very, very much like a video game. The contents of this Cybermaster Toolkit from LEGO Technic will transport you and your PC to Technic City, where you'll discover how to build and control your own intelligent machines through your computer. Two words to remember, two machines to build, two ways to battle, but only one winner. Could that be you? Those were two ads from uh, the Cybermaster trailer. And, you know, when I watched that trailer, Brian, I, mm -hmm. I wouldn't have associated a video game or, or even a digital product, I would say, with, with Cybermaster at all. It seems more like a toy, um, more like a robot. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. And I think the, the first real in my mind smart toy, uh, which is sort of the first iteration of fluid play that we saw, was actually started not by the Lego group, but by this company called Zowie Entertainment. Yeah. Uh, so... Zowry Entertainment was founded in Silicon Valley in the late 90s, and their whole thing was they were a think tank. They were working on this technology and trying to infuse technology into toys, uh, kind of like Furby and, you know, Tickle Me Elmo, those sort of things. And they came up with this idea of using these chips, these RF chips that uh, could be embedded into a toy, and then they would have like this big plate and you would take these figurines and move them around, and that would cause an interaction to occur on the computer screen. So you would play physically with the toy, and it would make things happen on the screen. 
they came out with two games. One was Red Beer's Pirate Quest. Uh, the one probably better known is Ellie's Enchanted Garden. And that was like uh, a big deal when that came out in the uh, late 90s. By the sea, the penguins and the seals keep busy. Spinning till we fall down dizzy And the world's upside down That's the track Upside Down from the Zowie-produced game Ellie's Enchanted Garden. I remember you sent me that tune. Uh, It's written by the accomplished composer Andrew Perry, and the whole soundtrack is this impressive 90s pop alternative kind of sounding score, and for a kid's game, super ambitious. Now, Zowie was the company here that worked on Enchanted Garden, and and they were also the ones to work on the first game-enabled toys with uh, the Lego Group. And we actually talked with one of the developers from that time. Uh, let's let's take a listen to that interview that you and I conducted. So uh, I'm John Sakalowski, and. Um, I was hired to work for a a smart toy game company back in 1998 uh, that was investing a lot in entertainment-oriented technologies, and they found a object tracking technology that they wanted to build into a toy experience. And so what I, I did primarily on that was build uh, figurines, action figures, characters into a, a playset, and those toys became sort of a tactile, tangible input into a video game experience. So I know you worked on this think tank that then became Zowie Entertainment. Uh, you started working on that, and then at some point, the Lego group came in and essentially bought the whole company with the idea of you creating something that became what was later named KidPad. Uh, how did the Lego group get involved or or what was your sense of why they wanted to get involved in this product? Yeah, so we were you know, a seed funded startup and uh, I think we had run out of funding and were put on the market essentially. And we had talked to a couple of different companies. Um, you know, Leapfrog was one of them. Uh, Play Hut was another uh, and I forget exactly how Lego got into the picture, but we started talking to them. And their motivation was to start to build technology into their games. Uh, they had started to do Mindstorms. They had video games. And they were really looking at how to enable the, the classic brick building play experience with a technology. So when you became part of the Lego group and started working on the KidPad, what was the vision for what the KidPad was going to be? So the idea is that you would have uh, characters. Um, there was an RF-based uh, object tracking capability in there, and the manipulation of them, the combinations of them, uh, the construction element of it would create different gameplay in the video game experience. And so, like, physically, it was like, was it this tray that had, like, toys that you could move around? Or how, what did it look like physically? Yeah, so I, I think KidPad is the term for the technology platform, you know, that had the object tracking technology in it and the video game play. And what it had was a essentially a tray, a play surface that had an antenna array built into it for tracking the objects that were placed on it. And... Uh, 
Lego Circus or Duplo Circus was one of the titles that was being developed to run on that platform. There was a very uh, well-known Duplo Circus playset that had kind of come and gone over the years, and they were planning on bringing that back under this KidPad platform. Do you get a sense of what it was the Lego group was hoping to achieve with these? You know, like why they were kind of stepping outside the bounds of just the physical? I think they were pushing, uh, you know, their traditional boundaries in a lot of dimensions. You know, I'd mentioned they're, they're diversifying into theme parks and other areas, lifestyle goods. And I think this was part of that uh, endeavor to be more relevant in the toy market in particular. So being more relevant in the, in the toy market back in the late 90s, what, what did that entail? I think everything was, was becoming digitized. More and more technology was making its way into people's daily lives. And the toy industry was perhaps on the vanguard of that. So you would had things like you know, Furby and Tickle Me Elmo, traditional play experiences that were suddenly much more compelling from a user experience perspective and maybe perhaps even more so from a market perspective, given those were just runaway successes. And so you'd see a lot of things that were just, you know, we're going to put a chip in this and have it do something um, it didn't necessarily need to do. You know, in some ways, it, it could almost short circuit the play experience. Uh, but that was the general trend. Right. Uh, so the Lego group internally talks a lot about fluid play, which is this idea of teaching children or figuring out a way to get children to play with the physical and also the digital without sort of uh, short circuiting the experience. Was there a lot of thought about how you could sort of balance those two experiences or was it more like, you know, a different approach entirely? I would say that was the core of what we were trying to do. Uh, the 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 goal was to to extend that primary physical experience through the capabilities that the digital would provide and try to do it in a very seamless way what, so what were some of those challenges beyond the the physical space and the fact that you know not a console so it's not maybe in a living room what other sort of challenges did you have in terms of trying to i guess direct a child's attention I'd say most disturbing or concerning thing I found from the playtesting we were doing, and we did extensive playtesting uh, with early prototypes, um, was um, the video experience for kids was very passive. So uh, especially the age we were going at for something like Duplo, you know, we're looking at, you know, four to seven years old. Uh, you put them in front of a screen and they just sort of stare at the screen and their jaws go slack and they wait for something to happen. When we would test them with just the toys, the, the noise level in the room would disturb other people working outside of it and stuff would get broken because these kids were going crazy playing with these things. And then the minute you hook it up to the computer, it's a totally different, lower energy experience. Wow. So it, like you must have had some thoughts on that. Like that's, as you said, kind of disturbing on some level. What were you what were you thinking at the time? Well, my, yeah, my first thought was like, oh, crap, <laughs> how is this going to work uh, for kids? Like, how do we... How do we support that uh, very dynamic, kinetic, high-energy experience? And so I actually went and redesigned some of the games. We couldn't track objects in the air, but we could try to intercept them or, or predict where they were going to come down. Uh, so we created games that, that leveraged that high-amplitude experience as opposed to trying to minimize the movements that the kids could do on the play surface. Um, 
that was the biggest, you know, the biggest response. And the other was just kind of vocalizing the concern, um, you know, not not on the project per se, but more on the, the conceptual approach around, you know, is this the best thing to be doing uh, with with an eye towards the kids? Like, are we are we really helping them uh, improve their play experience or are we are we defeating it in a way? Were those conversations you had with the Lego group? Yeah, definitely like within the team and and you know, we were we were part of Lego at that point and so we did raise it and and try to address it as part of the product development activities. I know this didn't uh this never came out. So I guess my question is uh twofold. One is how far along were you and do you have any idea why and and how it was canceled? Oh yeah. I I still have nightmares about this from time to time. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. We were about 3 quarters of the way through. So the toys were essentially designed, the hardware had been designed, and we were working on the video game software development. And um, what had happened was uh, the dot-com economy in uh, Silicon Valley, where we were based, just sort of blew up. Um, all the dot-com funding was drying up. People were you know, closing up and getting laid off. And so that was sort of the, the, the mood of the world. And then Lego had run into some of their own financial problems. Uh, they had the year or two before done their first ever property with Star Wars. And it was a huge success. And my understanding is that they had overinvested based on that. So they uh, started planning a bunch of theme parks around the world and launching into all sorts of different uh, product categories beyond just the traditional play space. And they found themselves overextended. And so uh, they went into a cost cutting mode. And one of those was one of those casualties was us. So they shut down our entire group and uh, pulled everything back to Denmark and shelved it. Wow. And how long had you worked on the project uh, when that happened? We were about a year and a half in. We had stopped working. As Zowie, we had stopped working. We were all being paid to hang around, like not to leave while the deal was being worked out uh, with Lego. And then we had started to work on things in advance of the deal being finalized. Uh, with the expectation that it would just be a matter of uh, working out details. I guess the follow-up question here, John, would be what happened with all that stuff? And is it on some machine somewhere or are the prototypes laying around somewhere? Or I I was led to believe there is a vault at Lego that has uh, everything in it. You know, when we shut everything down and left the offices, we sent them all the prototypes and, you know, the code to date and all of that. Um with a few exceptions. And one exception was I got to keep a prototype unit and set up because uh, I said, you know, I need something I can show people for what I've spent the last two years doing. Um, and they, they were amenable to that. Um, they also got a jar of pig's feet. Um, I don't know if they realized that <laughs> as what? well. Um, <laughs> so we got a few please minutes explain. for this story. Yes, please. Uh, the, the first project I worked on, uh, well, Ellie's Enchanted Garden with Zowie, we were under cost constraints. And uh, this is one of the my earliest lessons in, in, in product design is, is you're trying to just strip away, you know, pennies here, pennies there. And I realized we had four characters. And if we got rid of a character, we would save all our money, but we'd better yet preserve the gameplay for everything else that we were trying to eviscerate. So I killed off the pig. That was the character we, we got rid of. And all the games, all the animations, all the plastic parts that went with that 
we're gone. And when I announced it at the status meeting, I said, I have good news and bad news. Good news is we're on budget again. The bad news is the pig had to go. And I took out this jar of pig's feet I'd, I'd got at, uh, at the, the supermarket and I dropped it on the table to make my point and everyone screamed. Um, <laughs> Wow. And so when we were packaging things up, I was I still had this jar of pig's feet unopened. Uh, and I was like, well, you know, I think they need to get this, too. So I put it in one of the boxes of all the <laughs> stuff that we we shipped. So wait, are you saying that you guys were the pigs at this in this late larger analogy? <laughs> we certainly felt like, you know, there, were, there had been a slaughter. Um, so if you find the pig's feet, you will find all the other uh, kid pad related material. That's good. Just, I just hope they sniff. didn't throw the whole thing away based on that. You know what I mean? They're like, what's this? Oh my gosh, throw it all away. That would be terrible. I don't know. I'm hoping it survived the trip. Yeah. Because if it had cracked open in transit, yeah, that probably wouldn't have made it into the into the country. Well, thanks so much, John, for, for your time, for talking with us and uh, sharing this history. It's, it's been a delight. Likewise. This is a lot of fun. It's nice to know that people are still interested in it and still still care about it. Every so often, somebody will ping me, uh, you know, ran, some random guy online because I had, I have like an online portfolio site where I have some of the KidPad stuff listed and somebody will find it and be like, oh my God, is this what I think it is? Like, tell me more about this. Because uh, I guess there's rumor and legend in the Lego world, um, you are the, the fan base uh, around some of these things. So, Brian, I actually called uh, Tina Mortensen, who's the record manager and lead archivist with the Lego Group Archives, and uh, I asked her about the kid pad and, of course, uh, the pig's feet. <laughs> yeah, she, she laughed and said it was definitely submitted before her time joining in 2011, or she would have clearly remembered. But what right. followed was actually a very informative conversation to the archives, which, you know, isn't available to the public, but just for a select people internally at the Lego Group. And, and spread across several basement facilities are these rows of shelves that stretch about 4.5 kilometers. That's cool. Yeah, it's cool. And on the one side of the shelf, uh, they archive all the launched products, and on the other, all the discontinued elements in the project. So she definitely knows where to look and, and would at some point maybe dig a little deeper. But yeah, it's a real shame that the LEGO Kid Pad was never released. Yeah, and it's really unfortunate. I feel like some of the financial issues and company woes that, that, that were going on at the LEGO Group from yeah. 2000 to, say, 2003 really killed off or at least temporarily put on hold a lot of fascinating projects. And sadly, KidPad was one of them. You think about, like, how long does it take for them to even tackle game-enabled toys? And, and it takes a long time, but all these other things are taking place. Lego.com, Lego Star Wars, um, you know, even LDD and Lego Factory, these kind of customized building, uh, build-your-own-creation type experiences that take place digitally. Uh, they're, all, they're all happening in parallel, and they're, in my book a little less risk and for sure Lego Star Wars wins here. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the history of the Lego group is a history of timing. Yeah. And, you know, in 2000, when Lego Kid Pad came out, there there really wasn't anybody doing this. It was a very unusual thing. It was called Smart Toys. Yeah. So you didn't see a lot of that happening. And then, you know, fast forward uh, to 2011 and Skylanders blows up. And in Skylanders is essentially, it's exactly what Zowie was doing. Yeah. It's it's taking, uh, you know, they refined it, but it's taking a, a, a figurine, putting a chip in it, having that chip read by a game system and then playing the game yeah. on a system. And um, it wasn't until 2011 
that they sort of started coming back to this with with this product called Life of George. Um, and then soon after, you've got Fusion, which has, I think, four iterations. And then, of course, Lego Dimensions, which is this amazing product. And then Nexo Knights. And some of their some of their technology even showed up in the Lego house as the fish designer. So, yeah, you have this kind of dormant period. It does take, you know, games like Minecraft, Skylanders, Disney Infinity, you know, those kinds of games to, uh, you know, to really motivate the Lego group to kind of get back into the game on this area. But what is that called? Is is this fluid play at the time? Uh, what are they calling this? And, and how are they kind of coining the term here? Yeah, so obviously Ellie's Enchanted Garden in that period, those were considered smart toys. Uh, but by the time we get to 2011 and 2013 or, or 2012 to 2013, what the Lego group is now talking about is something that they call one reality. Uh, so yeah. the Lego group in August 2012 put together this presentation about one reality and, and this is how they described it. They said one reality is a balanced integration of virtual and physical Lego play in which each reality enhances the other. So th- the idea here is that this is going to be something that will enhance the enjoyment and experience of the physical Lego brick. So it's sort of digital in service of physical. Hello, welcome to the life of George. Playing is simple. Just download the app, then take George, the pieces, and the mat out of the box. In single player mode, the building challenges come from George's own photo albums. The clock starts ticking and you're off. Assemble as fast as you can, then place your creation on the mat. Scan it to get your score. George's photo albums are no joke, so each level includes a ton of challenges for you to build, scan, and score. Build, scan, score! Brian and I were able to talk to uh, Paul Smith-Meyer and Michael Vanting. Uh, Paul Smith-Meyer worked at the Lego Group from 2000 to 2013 as head of the new business group and led the development of Life of George. And Michael Vanting is currently senior marketing manager with the Lego Group, and we talked to him about his work on Nexo Nights. Uh, so, Paul, if you could tell me a little bit about how the core conceit of Life of George came about. Yeah, well, uh, I joined Lego back in 2000, and the first seven years I worked at Lego was as a creative director most of the time, and for Creator, Lego Technic, and Lego Mindstorms. And then the last seven years, uh, I was so lucky to build up a new business group. And uh, from there, we launched Lego Architecture, Lego IDs, Lego Muji, and also Life for George. And the journey with Life for George really started all the way back to the first project I was on in 2000, which was called KidPad. And what we tried to do there was really to find a way where we could fuse uh, the physical Lego play with the virtual Lego play. So fast forward uh, nine years and I'm uh, working in a new business group. And uh, I meet this Israeli company um, called IQ in Boston. So what they had was uh, a webcam connected to a laptop and uh, using this webcam, they could uh, recognize Lego bricks. And I was sitting there looking at this. It was really cool as a tech invention, but I was remembering back to KidPad that kids do not play with Lego on a desk in front of a screen. So I I pulled up the iPhone and said, hey, this also has a camera. Uh, Would it be possible for you guys to do what you're doing with the webcam, but on the phone. And they looked at it, it's like, okay, we can do that. So a few months later, they came back to Billen and showed us what we called at the time Pling. And really what it was, uh, was a 
Lego plate where you could place uh, one by brick, so it's the, the, the kind of flat Lego bricks in different colors, build them together, place them there. And then using your phone, you held it up and then it said playing. And then uh, what you had built was usually on the screen, not always. And it, but it was kind of like, ah, this works. So we really looked at that as a, almost like the essence of putting two bricks together. We had found this new connection that we wanted to use. And uh, that was really the start of what became Life of George. And then Life of George went on to become this product that uh, was given sort of a little more personality with a character. But can you tell me real quickly, what was, when you got Life of George, what was it you were meant to do with Life of George? So initially it was just called Brickit and it was really built a physical Lego uh, against time. So we, we were really working on the philosophy, the kind of dogma rules of what would make this Lego play. And we had said, we're going to launch this in the Apple stores. Uh, so we then had to actually go and talk to Apple. And at the meeting with Apple in London, they said, this is very cool, but it lacks personality. And uh, yes, it lacks personality. It was kind of just the function of the game. Uh, but then going back to Billund, the design team had also thought about this and uh, was launching this idea of the, this character called George. Uh, and... It was a perfect match because uh, this was exactly what we needed. So we, we created this universe for George. And um, using this universe, we used 144 very basic bricks in red, yellow, green, blue, black and white. Uh, and they were so basic that even internally, when we brought it into the, the core design teams, they were like, but you can't create with this. But we said, Let, let's try and then from some sessions we had with uh, designers from all across the different product groups, we built a whole universe of different objects using the same very basic bricks. And that then became the universe of George. And that was really the start of what we, we felt. Now we have the core idea. It was a fun universe, but we really want to build on that for, for more different ways to create with the bricks. Now, real quickly, fast forwarding. So uh, Life of George came out in 2011. Uh, then sort of a, a 2.0 version of Life of George came out in 2014 called Fusion. And uh, in between that time, there were some other ideas like Fish Tank, which would uh, go on to be um, an exhibit. Um, and then 2015 saw Dimensions, which was this Toys to Life uh, uh, game that allowed you to, to use minifigures and put them into a game that you could play. And then 2016 comes and we get Nexonites. And uh, um, Michael Vanting, uh, I wanted to uh, ask you the same thing um, about how you got involved with Nexonites and, and what it was. Well, I joined LEGO around 10 years ago. And then in late 13, I joined the Big Bang team working on uh, Legends of Chima. And then we were working on this new Big Bang called Nexonites where futuristic knights could download powers into their shields and that would become a, you can say, physical digital product where you could scan the physical shields of the minifigures uh, and then get them into a, an app game. And so what was, what was the reaction? There was some concern at that time, with especially in, in some markets, that if it was too digital, they wouldn't buy the traditional products. I'm curious, for both of you, uh, was fluid play something that was being discussed at the time? You know, we discussed a lot and there was a lot of debating because we were different teams working with different approaches. So sometimes it was kind of became philosophical. For some, the main drivers to see how can the digital really inspire 
kids to build more and play more physically. So we looked at this kind of play loop where you, you created something and then use it in a digital space and that play would then inspire you to go back physically and, and, and play more. And, and for others, it was more kind of maybe looking at it as a, as a relevance tool to, to sell more of the product line. So I think there, there was yeah, different approaches to the same, same technology. So that period after Life of George, what was your goal? Was it to sort of solve that fluid play problem or what was it you were trying to do after Life of George? We were really trying to discover with that technology a, a new kind of core way of playing that could then be applied across many different play themes, just like as back to the, the connectivity of bricks. So back to the essence of Lego, which was creativity. And at the same time, you know, Minecraft was really starting you know, to take off. So we looked at Minecraft as the, the true embodiment of Lego play in the virtual world. Uh, and we couldn't really copy that. So we said our benefit is that we have physical bricks. So we actually were experimenting with some ways of playing that uh, you built artifacts that you could import into and shape a Lego uh, 3D world, which was like a Lego Minecraft. That's, that's interesting. Uh, what do you think? I'd love to hear what you both think about how the Lego group's notion of fluid play intersects with the traditional toys to life. When we started KidPad back in 2000, the dream was to build a race car and put it in the virtual world and then so you could drive the Lego race car. But as we moved on, I think a lot of it would also say, how do we use technology in a smarter way so we inspire kids to build with Lego? You know, a, a, a new way of inspiring. Um, and that was kind of the essence of a lot of what the work we did before Fusion. I think when you see something like the new Lego Super Mario, I think this is the closest I've seen on that physical digital integration because it inspires you to change your, your course and rebuild it and... It has this Lego DNA that the more sets you get, the more value you have, the more variety you can do in your world, where the physical suddenly takes its own role and replicating things from the digital world, but without trying to um, compete in a way. And uh, yeah, I think the team has done a tremendous job. Yeah, and I think, I think that, that's where we forget that when we launch truly new innovations into the market, it takes time for them to adopt in the in the consumer market. So it's actually the patience and the persistency needed to to build something. Uh, because we are so used to like, you know, we launch it one year. If it doesn't work in the launch year, you discontinue it. Uh, but when you launch something new, it's, it's not going to work. It's just a start. And then it's like you need to build on it. So we often said you launch to learn so you can iterate and then grow. Uh, not just launch to learn, because learning in itself is, uh, if you can't iterate on it, it has no value. A lot of time markets, they don't know what they want. So they, when they see something new, it, 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 there might be some resistance. And then, But then when something is out, they're saying, why can't we get this? So when you have something that is completely new, it just presents a lot of challenges to how do you convey what it is? And obviously, that's the big challenge also on LEGO Super Mario, because it's new for, for LEGO users, how you do this, but it's also new for fans of, of the IP because it's a completely new way to interact with the, with the IP and it's a completely new way to interact with Lego. So that's the, the interesting part. So, so Michael, it's almost like the opposite of a big bang. It's like a slow bang. You know, <laughs> you need to almost have a, like a five-year strategy so that over the next five years, we will build this into a large category. 
Yeah, but uh, you also know that uh, that's that's probably <laughs> not the way it works. No, exactly. So that's the challenge. Yeah. So Brian, I, I decided to do something fun here. Um, my youngest son, Milo, he's five. And he's been begging to play Lego Hidden Side for the longest time. Uh, every time we're in the aisle, he, he immediately goes straight to these Hidden Side boxes and he, he stares at the image of the minifig who's holding up the phone and scanning the Lego set and, and there's these you know ghosts underneath and yeah, he just goes wide-eyed and loves it. And so I went ahead and I bought the Lego Hidden Side castle and of course uh, recorded the both of us building and playing for the first time. So uh, take a listen. Look how huge. That's so good. That's huge. I always want to have that one. Is this the one you always wanted? Yeah. That's cool. Now look how old you have to be. How old do you have to be? Nine. You have to be nine. That's right. But guess what? How old are you? Five. And have we built sets before that uh, were for older kids? Yeah. Exactly. First you build your set. Then you scan the set. Then you catch the ghosts. Uh, yeah, how many parts does it have? This has a little over a thousand parts. I think more than a thousand. All right, so I oh, open man, this. Oh man, I'm so excited. Here we go. I'm gonna start looking for these parts over here. Oh, oopsie. <laughs> so we unpack all the bricks and are in the middle of setting everything up here. And of course, Milo has no problem at all just playing with the minifigs uh, with and around the unfinished parts that we're building of the set and he's just loving it. Two hours later. We're almost done. We're, well, I don't know if we're almost done. We're about halfway. Yeah, halfway. Wow. It takes us several hours to get all the set built, and then it's time to download the app and finally play the game. Nope, it found all the players. Now, scan the castle. Okay, did you scan the castle? Yep. Okay, so now we see the castle, and it says, Objective, capture the ghosts. And it looks like this is where you fire, and you have to, oh, look like it looks like you can turn these over. Perfect, let's turn these over. You did? I have one too. Whoa, the heat level's getting high. Let's see if I can get behind the castle. There's one right there. Hey, can I shoot him? Yeah, you can. Where is he? To look behind the castle. I don't think it's there anymore. Whoa, I'm getting shot at. Whoa, you're getting shot at too. Move out of the way. See if we can find him. You got him. So overall, it was a fun experience for sure, and, and Milo loved it, and obviously he's way too young for the game. Uh, that's probably not the best parenting on my part for sure, but I did also experience a little bit of what uh, John Sokolovsky talked about with the kid pad testing observation. You know, Milo was really glued to the phone, and his interaction with the physical grew more limited too. Um, Again, I know this was mostly an age thing, but but when you build sets for two to three hours with a barrage of sound effects and, and imaginary fights right next to you, uh, and then you experience this intense kind of like quiet concentration of, of phone app gameplay, uh, it does kind of illustrate the point. Um, 
Anyway, later we, we walked the dog together and uh, I just asked him a few follow-up questions. Say that again, Mila. What what did you notice? I, I want to um, walk with the mini pigs. And not just with the ghosts? Mm-hmm. With the mini pigs, too. What is your, what do you think about the game? It's cool. What's the funnest part of the game? That you can be a ghost. Mm-hmm. You know, I, it sounds like uh, your son, who is five, he enjoyed it, but there were some challenges there that my son, who's 19, sort of saw, which is uh, you can't do everything you want to do in the game. I mean, it's fun. It, it does a really good job of setting up this augmented reality field and sort of plopping the Lego bricks into it. Yeah. But there's also this lack of interaction that, you know, can be a little frustrating. And I think uh, your son at five probably did a much better job of vocalizing that frustration than my son at 19 did. He just sort of rolled his eyes at me. <laughs> yeah. Well, he has little fits about it. So that's always funny. Yeah. So we, uh, yeah, we fortunately uh, had a chance to talk about a lot of this and about fluid play with uh, Sam Coates, who worked on Hidden Side, and also with Cephas Howard, who has a lot of history working on some of these unusual projects that sort of combine the digital and the physical to create fluid play. Um, my name's Sam Coates. I work at Lego Creative Play Lab, where we explore the future of play with Lego bricks. So I joined Lego in the summer of 2016, so I've been here four years now. Uh, my team are a bunch of hackers who believe that digital functions make new ways to play. So we spend every every day hacking new things together and putting them in front of kids to see what works. My name's Cephas Howard. I'm the Chief Play Officer at the Play Institute, um, and I was formerly the Director for Innovation and Digital Play at Lego and leading kind of things in terms of from Lego Worlds to uh, Lego Games to uh, VR and AR explorations a few years ago. Cephas, I think your first project was pretty unusual. Uh, What was the first thing you worked on at the Lego Group? Uh, We were working on what was called the Growth Driver Project, which was uh, to identify what could be a new area, a new experience for Lego to bring out once we'd gone through the crisis, because we were kind of in the back end of the crisis of the 2000 and sort of 2000, 2004 kind of time. And we'd rebuilt a lot of the company, but we expected that we needed something new to reveal once we came out of that. And I developed what was called Lego Games, which was board games uh, rather than video games. Uh, as a result of that. Was there any discussion back then of what, what is now called fluid play, the idea of, of shifting between uh, the digital and the physical? Um, the project initially started focusing on the physical, um, but what we discovered very early on was that the biggest barrier to people accepting new games is the rules. Um, and the rule book is then what we kind of obviously worked on. But what we discovered was that one of the best ways that we could help people with that barrier was to make digital uh, rules. So we made some very early things there, which were uh, digital, almost kind of like mini game experiences, which kids could go online to basically learn how to play the game. Um, And then as we went forward and into things like Fusion and, and actually some of the stuff later, we worked on basically working together with the two. So, for example, using an iPad or an iPhone with your board game experience, um, sometimes where they were interdependent and then actually dependent. So there was lots of exploration in that sort of area towards the latter end. And I and I think I should point out for people not familiar with the games that you made, these board games were made of Lego bricks. So it was still a full Lego brick experience, right? Yes. And that's kind of one of the things that was fun about 
the different direction that we were proposing at that time, which was that if it was a, there are board games and there are card games, but if it was a Lego game, then everything needed to be Lego. Um, and one of the ways we demonstrated that early was to make a Lego dice so that the actual die was um, also completely uh, as a Lego element rather than like a wooden die or something. Um, so real quickly, just want to uh, transition over to Sam. You uh, did you how early on did you get involved with Hidden Side or how involved were you with Hidden Side? Um, so I was, I guess, on Hidden Side in its difficult teenage years. Um, <laughs> I was brought on in the summer of 17. Um, the team had kind of been through lots and lots and lots of different proposals and, and rejection on new play themes. And they landed on augmented reality ghost hunting. So I came on board then to try and um, explore what I might mean very, very quickly. We had to find it and develop it and ship it for within two years, which was a bit of a challenge. Um, so that was my my mission. What was uh, what were some of the? I mean, obviously, there's a lot of complexity there. But what were some of the challenges in trying to uh, create a, uh, I guess, fluid play for for uh, a, what could have been a traditional theme set? I'd say for most of the early concept work, we were just wrestling with the technology. Um, you know, it, it was mostly marker driven. It was not robust. It didn't work on every device. And it was only really when around around the same time as Brickheads, when Apple and Google started to produce their platform level AR core and AR kit, that we saw the level of stability that we really wanted. But explaining to the business what the hell it was we were making when it looked so bad and it was so unstable and the prototypes all kept falling apart um, to a relatively technically illiterate company, that was a challenge. Um, and then... The one that we discovered once we got better, and the one that I think still exists, even now Hidden Side's out, was we fundamentally changed what a Lego experience was. And we had to take kids with us, and they didn't automatically come with us. And I think we, we're still learning how to explain interactive sets and how to explain the play potential when you know the, the the core product's 80 years old and everybody knows thinks they know exactly what it is then you're you're changing what it means um so i think that that maybe we didn't give enough time and effort to we were focused on the technology too much or or just the robustness too much um but you know with hindsight yeah that's where we just spent more time so when you say you changed the fundamental ways that kids uh were meant to interact what, what do you can you explain that how was it changing yeah, so it's, it really is because it's augmented reality and it's viewed through a phone. It's a layer on top. In Hidden Side, we're overlaying the model. We're giving it more meaning. It doesn't just get built and used as a backdrop. There's there's stuff to do. Think in the case of the Hidden Side, things to find, things to discover. Um, not that one is better than the other. It's just kids hadn't needed to play with Lego like that before. Messing around with it, it's very neat. Uh, I love that it is so. Um... It, it it manages to do so much with the model on such a small level in terms of like even being able to see through the model and see some AR in there. But there seems like you, when you have a blank slate and you know what you want to do, that there are so many possibilities. How did you decide what sort of game modes to have and, and where to put that AR in, in the experience? So we have this really helpful thing called the pressure of a deadline. Um, oh right, <laughs> we, which meant that we were yeah we were up against the clock continuously on that project. It was late when we started. Um, so really, 
we prototyped as much as we could and we pulled out the the best set of things that we had so far at the time um and that you know frankly that's that's how it was done um we did throw away an awful lot of mechanics which were kind of cool but didn't work as a set or cool but didn't really make any sense as ghost hunting um and we've carried on playing around with those since but um Really, it was it was just do the best you can in the time you've got, and then take the cream off the top. So, Hidden Side uh, obviously is still out, still supported, still getting new sets. Do you uh, kind of going back all the way to things like uh, the Kid Pad and Cybermaster and Life of George? It seems that the Lego Group has done a lot in terms of innovation, and that sometimes it's helped and sometimes hindered. I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that. Do you feel that these fluid play examples and experiments have been innovative? Yeah, and I think it's a very tricky space. Um, I've I've spoken events on the effect of, of combining physical and digital and the challenges therein. Um, and uh, yeah, there is. It's very hard to kind of like name off the top of your head. You know, like name five examples of people that have done it amazingly well. Um, it's really, really hard to do. And so I think that Lego has done a, a, as as well or, or better than most. Um, and I think that as people are, we spend, what, 41% of our lives now staring at screens. So as people become digitally native, um, these opportunities and with the technology advances are going to open up more and more. And so all of that groundwork that Lego has done in spending the time and energies on these innovations, the ones that worked, the ones that didn't, um, is going to pay off in the long run. Um, but that's always the challenge with innovation is, um, is the timing of things, right? You need the, the right time, the right experience with the right technology um, and people that are ready to adopt it. Um, and so I think that you can never guarantee all of those things. So you have to put things out there, um, do the best you can on as many of those factors you can control. Um, and then like Skylanders did, you know, sometimes you hit it, you hit the nose on the head or the nail on the head. Um, and, uh, and bam, you know, it's, it's, it's in every home. Um, and Sam, what do you think? I still think we're in the exploring phase. So we're, you know, we're, we're going to make quite a few mistakes. We're going to try a lot of things that don't work or don't scale or the timing, the experience is great, but the timing is off or, or, or whatever. Um, you know, and we're getting more mature in our innovation processes to make sure that we tackle things like technical feasibility alongside the desirability of, of the play so that we don't get to a certain point or this is great how are we going to make it or how are we going to make money if we do make it rather than lose money so no i think you know we've got a good track record we're getting stronger and as sifa says it's a really challenging space like you have to innovate because nobody knows the right answers yet do you uh just uh, from a big picture how important is fluid play is fluid play like the next flash in the pan or do you think it's sort of the future of of play or something in between? <laughs> Personal opinion, of course I think it's the future of play or I wouldn't have quit making video games to come and make interactive toys. So you know, personally, I believe 100% it's, it's, eight is one of the futures of play. I still think playground play is going to be the most important one. I'm still going to enjoy watching kids riding bikes and running around shooting sticks at each other. But I think there are things you can do when you have a mixed reality experience that are special and unique and fire the imagination of children more. So absolutely, I think it's here to stay. I think we haven't got good enough technology to really integrate well into kids' lives yet. But when the time comes, um, there's there's loads we can do that will be more interesting than just sitting watching a flat, flat screen. 
and and for me, I think it's it's constantly changing because I think there's a difference between what is possible and what is uh, adopted. Um, so we're always treading that 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 um, that line because, as Ronnie said, even Lego itself tried experiments in VR in the '90s, right? So um, it's it's and then you know I think five years ago we all thought VR was finally here and we kind of shown that it, it isn't yet. So, so I think that sometimes you have these spikes, um, and the same with AR, where they kind of they take a surge forward, um, but then sometimes they stall a little bit. So it's a bit hard to tell. I think that I was hoping to be getting a pair of uh, Apple AR glasses, you know, for Christmas this year, and I won't be getting those. Um, but um, we might all be surprised. So I think it, you know it might take another ten years, or um, these things can often just take a leap forward, as the iPad did. Um, for me or for the iPhone, sorry, making that leap from what was the iPod. Um, so that's where I think that we can be surprised and that's what keeps us on our toes because yes, it could take another 10 years, but it might actually only take two or three. Um, so I think that's, that's that, you know, that edge. And so you don't want to be too early, um, but you certainly, you certainly don't want to be five years too late. And innovation doesn't go on a nice linear line or even on an S-shaped curve, although it's closer to that. No, it happens in big steps, and they're innate, you know, one technology enables another when it's technically driven it led innovation. But sometimes it's just the market's ready. Uh, like right now, screen time is probably our biggest concern. If we keep putting too much on screens, parents will will not let kids play that long. That's not a, that's a cultural shift, not um, not a technological shift. I love that conversation with uh, Sam and Cephas. Uh, so many great insights in, in to fluid play and understanding the space and also this idea of timing. Right. Um, so let's take a look at um, some of our conclusions, uh, some of our final thoughts here, Brian. Yeah. Uh, for me, at first look, this, this idea of game-enabled toys, this idea that there's something physical that allows you to play in a digital space in whatever way, shape, or form that is, uh, seemed kind of abstract to me. Uh, it, was, it was abstract enough for me to even question if this topic, this single topic of fluid play should, should merit an entire podcast, uh, right? This idea like, do we have enough here to talk about? But uh, as I dove deeper into the concept, uh, the Lego toys and games, it included something really crystallized for me. And it was this idea that tracing the history of smart toys and fluid play at the Lego group really helped me understand, you know, that fluid play plays a really vital role in this uh, play experience lineup. And for me, in a way, it, it had less to do with some of the past attempts in the genre, but with the ability to be able to look into the future and imagine toys that are more powerful, you know, more sophisticated and, and truly bring the physical into the digital in, in new and exciting ways. Uh, the work of the Lego group in this space, however, I think is remarkable. Um, and as we've heard from several designers, you know, the Lego brick as, as a toy has always lent itself, I think, to this physical digital imagination. 
And one of the most seamless experiences I've had has been at the Lego house with the fish designer. Uh, you build your little fish, no matter what shape it has within the parameters, it's scanned and then immediately it's kicked into this huge uh, fish tank uh, in front of your eyes and it swims away. And I remember as a whole family, we would just uh, be doing that over and over and over again and actually come back to it throughout the day. So it was a, it was a successful, I think, uh, bringing to life experience. And finally, uh, you know, this past week, uh, we've both been able to kind of check out Lego Super Mario. Uh, and I'm really excited to do a whole episode on this because it merits a whole episode. But um, I'm convinced that fluid play will continue to soar as a vital play experience in the digital space. And, and it's definitely very exciting. It's interesting to hear your take on how your family and specifically your young son has sort of experienced these forms of fluid play. I, I think uh, about a complete rework of Mark Twain's famous quote on humor when I think about the Lego group's attempts at fluid play, and that is, success is innovation plus the proper timing. And I think that's something that we've seen over and over again with the Lego group, that timing is obviously a key issue. Uh, fortunately, uh, the company's long-standing deep interest in all forms of play is a big part of why it continues to dominate the toy industry, and I believe will continue to play a big role in how well it does in the game industry. What's fascinating here, though, is how much concern the company shows for how these physical toys and digital experiences might merge, and the impact they might have, not just on toys or on games, but on the children that interact with them. The digitification of toys seems like it was inevitable. It started as simply jamming electronics into physical toys and then calling them smart toys, like we saw with things like um, Ellie's Enchanted Garden. And while there were some interesting byproducts of that movement, it turned out to be approached still in its infancy. We see that with the LEGO Group's own first major attempts in the kid pad. It's a novel idea, but one that came too soon for the company to make effective use of. Unfortunately, the evolution of that toy within the LEGO Group took too long to seize on the popularity of what would become Toys to Life mega hits like Skylanders and Disney Infinity. Here we see the LEGO Group once more suffering from both being too early in the market with KidPad and too late with LEGO Dimensions. But the company's deep involvement with all forms of play and its continued effort to define and shape how play would evolve meant that the LEGO Group persisted and landed first on the notion of one reality, and then most significantly on the concept of fluid play. It's in fluid play that we see a maturation of this concept of the digification of not just toys, but of the LEGO Group's ideals within a toy. While Hidden Side still doesn't get everything right in its merging of physical and digital, it moves that effort in the right direction. Lego Mario, on the other hand, finds a way to take the digital and make it physical while still maintaining the unique aspects of both forms of play. Mario may not be the embodiment of fluid play, but it is a major innovative step forward in this emerging form of hybrid interaction. This episode is dedicated to Vladimir Ignatov, Senior Product Lead and member of the Digital Play Front End and Toy Enhanced Games team. Vlad passed away too early this year. Bits and Bricks is made possible by LEGO Games. Our producer is Ronnie Scherer. Your hosts are Ethan Vincent and Brian Crescente. Episode producing and editing by Ethan Vincent. Writing by Brian Crescente. Original music, sound design, and mixing by Peter Primer. 
Additional music provided by the Enchanted Garden soundtrack and Henrik Lindstrand from the award-winning game Lego Builder's Journey, which you can play on Apple Arcade today. We'd like to thank our participants, John Sokolowski, Paul Smithmeyer, Michael Vanting, Sam Coates, and Cephas Howard. We'd also like to acknowledge the entire LEGO Games team, as well as the great folks at the LEGO Idea House for their support. For questions or comments, write us at bitsandbricks at lego.com. And as always, stay tuned for more episodes of Bits and Bricks.